Electricast. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save $1 each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting special guest Shonda Jha to the show today. Empowering changemakers to create an anti-oppressive workplace. Our guest is an anti-oppression consultant with 20 years of community organizing experience. She particularly loves helping organizations get diversity, equity, inclusion teams off the ground. In 2012, they founded the Oakland Peace Center, a collective of 40 organizations working to create equity, access, and dignity as the means of creating peace in Oakland and the Bay Area. An ordained pastor with a master's in public policy, our guest is comfortable on the pulpit, on the picket line, or hanging out with friends and friends-to-be over a good cup of tea and a good story. They're currently working on their fifth book for Chalice Press. Fun fact, our guest's dad was a Hindu from India and her mom is a Presbyterian from Scotland, meaning that she always has an excuse to take a day off of work on religious grounds. It's with, it's with great pleasure I welcome Shonda Jha to the show. Welcome to the show. I wish I, wish I had all of the Hindu holidays off. That would be amazing. <laughs> I mean, you you have a broad spectrum of, of spiritual practices right there, right? Yes. I mean, I am so happy to have you on the show. As I said, I wore a shirt in your honor. Just I love I love the shirt I love, so much. I love this stuff so much, and it's such a pleasure to have a person of your caliber come to the show and talk to me today and share your insight and your background. I, you can tell I'm like probably like super excited because I'm thrilled to be here. I've been listening to some of the episodes and really enjoying what you're doing, what you're creating. And with such a diverse array of folks, (laughs) right? Like, yeah, the fact that you've got, you've got folks who served, uh, you know, time on the inside. And in the next episode, you've got someone who's putting people behind bars. (laughs) And it's just, it's such a broad spectrum of folks who are in all sorts of different ways healing the the world and i really i love that thank you so much. thank you for that i i deeply receive that and appreciate it 
And it's, I feel like part of my show is spiritually inspired. Like I'll be sitting there late at night and I'll watch, like I've been watching Ukraine coverage recently dating where we are right now in the middle of March, but I'm working on getting some people from Ukraine to come on the show and share their experiences and anti, you know, Putin activists in Russia. I'm working on these things because I'm passionate about it. And I feel like it it works within the same realm of what you you do now and what I am aspiring to want to do more of, which is helping those who don't, who can't always help themselves and making a difference in our society so that when we leave, we've got that, that legacy, you know, like not, you know, so many people focus on their Rolex watches and their riches and their boats and all those. I've never been motivated by that since I've been spiritual in the last 15, 20 years. For me, yeah. it's like, how can I touch a few a few people in my life on a daily basis to make myself feel better, gain purpose and understanding? And ever since George Floyd, we were talking about that before our interview, but ever yeah. since he got murdered, it's like the, everything that we've conceived of, at least from my point of view, has been upside down. And I, I look at, we it's, it's my obligation, anyone else in society, to make it right side up. And Absolutely. I think- Part of it is recognizing uh, the contributions that someone as yourself, for example, makes to society. The other part is having a dialogue about these topics so that we can increase awareness and raise understanding and, and like really try to make make an impact where in any way we can. You know, like you've been doing this for a long time. So I want to ask you from your perspective, where have you seen the flow of things in society towards racial justice since from the time you started to to where we are in the post-George Floyd era right now? And trying to come to talk with us. You know, I started doing racial justice work in the mid 90s. And I'll be honest and say it was a very painful time to be doing that work. And it felt a lot of the time like uh, we were just never going to win, that it was always going to be this bad. Um, and partly because so few people were aware and the dominant narratives were so toxic and so entrenched, right? Um, you know, I was just listening to a show about how Reagan created this notion of the welfare queen. It was a woman named Linda Thomas out of Chicago. He claimed that she had uh, made $150,000 off of uh, per year off of welfare and created this culture of Black people are lazy. They're a leech on the system. Um, and that had saturated so deeply into our culture that by the time I was really getting involved in, and as an aside, she was taken to court in the state of Illinois uh, for for fraud against the welfare state, $8,000. And so this narrative of she's living this life of luxury, she's walking that's, around. That's in the culture war stuff, right? I mean, it's isn't that what we're seeing? So. It's very much so. And it it was so effective at pitting poor white folks against poor black folks, Uh, especially given the fact that more than half of the people on welfare are white. Um, But the narrative was lazy, poor black folks. Right. And so this had saturated so deep into our deeply into our society that by the time I was getting involved in organizing work, there was a full on effort to reform the welfare system. That was led anytime by you hear those words together, anytime you hear those words together, yeah. you know what they're trying to do. They're not trying. And that's to that's exactly right. It was so racialized and it was being led by a Democratic president who was trying to score points in that same culture war. You know, the okay, kind of right? if you can't beat them, join them kind of philosophy. So it was really hard in those days. I. I don't want to make it sound like and now everything's great because it's. Uh, there's there's a lot of excruciatingly painful stuff that's still very much alive. I think the thing that gives me hope is that now 
there are more people paying attention, more people willing to talk about it, and more people willing to examine themselves. I think part of what kept it in place for so long was people saying, hey, I didn't create the problem and therefore it's not my problem. Uh, and now I think I'm experiencing more people saying, oh, systemic racism hurts white people too. It damages people's souls. It damages their relationships. Uh, and there are a lot of perks that come with it, but maybe those perks aren't worth it given the harm that it causes. And I think that's where I have hope. There's still a lot of policies that need work. There's still a lot of harm being done, but I feel like we're on the precipice of something. I agree with you. I do think we're on the precipice of something. And I'll give you an example. I mean, you could put on the football game and see anti-racist stuff, you yeah. know, in the, in the, in the end zones on the helmets and yeah. teams are changing color, uh, mascot names based on trying yep. to find me sensitive to each other. And that gives you some promise. I, I think what I, what I don't like is when society decides that, Oh, well, that's enough now let's go back to right. The, right. And I feel like the cooling off from what happened two years ago, is yes. it's something that I see more and more now. And I'm like, what are we cooling off? Like, yeah, someone died for nine minutes, the most barbaric death you could imagine. Yep. On, and it got broadcast across the world. So what are, what are we cooling off about? There's, and he wasn't the last person to no, have to suffer that. No, no. And thank God we have cameras. Thank God yeah. we have cell phones that we can record when, when these egregious, horrible yeah. acts are, are committed. And how many more times do we have to go through that though? I don't right. think society needs to go through this anymore. We're pretty wise to even yeah. things like gun violence and things like, mm-hmm. I was, you know, ever since church, Floyd, I've been educating myself, just like, I'll give you an example. Sundown towns. Yep. I was shocked to hear that these things existed throughout the country and they still exist yeah. in certain areas. Yep. Like, I mean, basically my interpretation of that is a, is a community that's majority white and mm-hmm. that if you are a minority or if you're a person of color, black or. Yeah, particularly a black person, although black, black person. indigenous person of color. Yeah. You, you can't travel into those communities after the sun goes down. And if I, I was like, how? <laughs> and so I think it's worth noting, you know, there, there's two categories of sundown towns. There's what they call, de, well, you know this, de jour, de jour the, the ones who are legally established. For the most part, those are off the books, but there's also um, de facto, right? The ones that aren't, it's not the law, but it's the culture. You know, I went, I, I was on a writing retreat recently. Uh, I got to go, a friend of mine booked me into this lovely little cabin so I could finish my book. And it was about four hours nor- north of here. And I was visiting some of my friends the day before I left. And I was telling them about this trip and they're both black. And they said, be real careful. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the cabins are pretty safe. It's a, You're thinking you know, it's animals, a, you're thinking right? nature. <laughs> well, but what's interesting is they're like, don't go into town. Like, I was like, no, 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 don't worry. When the sun goes down, I'm staying in my cabin. I'm, I'm only running errands during the daytime. Um, and that's the thing I think a lot of white folks don't realize are standard conversations still. Um, among people of color. Um, and I would, again, say particularly black people, indigenous folks, um, but all people of color are constantly navigating that. And I think, yeah, for you to name the sundown towns are still a thing, I think is really important because I think a lot of people don't realize that. You know, I grew up in a town in New Jersey outside New York city. It's called Lodi. It's in New Jersey. And we had our little bubble. I had mostly majority white school. You know, we had a, a few 
persons of color in our school, black, black students we were friends with, but it was like, we didn't have the understanding of what these oppressive things were because it wasn't in our face. And then even though my mom taught in Patterson, New Jersey, inner city, and she always told me every day about the plight of students and gangs and horrific things. Um, it gave me some understanding, but it really, it, it resonated as I got older. And it was like my own experiences where I was paired with an African-American student as a roommate my first year. Yeah. And I had another student tell me, oh, what are you going to do about that? And I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, he's black. And I said, <laughs> so what? And right, well, are right. you going to complain to the administration about it? And I was like, no, like that was shocking to me. Like, yeah. I, 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 you know, that's coming from my little bubble. But I, yeah. I want to ask you from your vantage point, everything that you've done and you're in the trenches and you've, you're helping to shape society right now, in my opinion, like with what you're doing and, and your efforts. And h- how do you think our world, or I should say the United States, our society, where we're, where we're living as citizens, what do you think it's going to take to get past these remaining obstacles that exist in our system? You know, everybody says we have systemic racism. I, I know uh-huh. that. I see it. Uh-huh. Everyone sees it. Once you take your, once you take, you know, the paradigm and, and, and push it away and look at the reality, you can see how yeah. horrible and unjust and, and inequitable these things are. And I, I would like to think that we've got to somehow come together, but how do you, how do you work with people that don't want to come together? And I think that's such a great question for, for most of my career, I was focused on, you know, how do we address national policies? How do we address uh, these, these, uh, these issues at the national level. Uh, I was doing work at an organization called the Interfaith Alliance. They're still going strong that was focused on religious liberties for religious minorities. And they were formed when the Christian coalition was at its height uh, as, as a way of saying, actually America's uh, the United States isn't just a Christian nation and being Christian and being religious doesn't mean you support one particular political ideology. I spent so much of my time doing that kind of work and uh, national civil rights work. So impressive. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I thought at the time. Um, But at this point, I really am oriented towards doing things community by community. And I get the question a lot. What do we do about the people who are against us? And I say I ignore them. I've decided there are so many people who want to make a difference and don't know where to start. Those are my people. Now, maybe it's somebody's job to convince people who are against, you know, racial justice, economic justice, the thriving of the working class. Maybe it's somebody's job to do the convincing work. But I got to be honest, there's so many people out there who do want to make a difference and don't know where to start that I think if we got all of those folks together, um, that's where the real change happens. And the thing I think people don't realize, I'm kind of an armchair scholar of the religious right. Um, yeah. And so I kind of geek out on that. It was a very intentional 50-year strategy, starting back with Nixon and then the establishment of some right-wing think tanks, uh, like the Heritage Foundation, um, the... Uh, Oh, what's the legal one? The one that gets the uh, the people on oh, the Supreme Court. The Federalist, the Federalist Society. Yeah, oh, the Federalist yeah. Society. All of those organizations, the Christian Coalition, which emerged out of the moral majority, 50-year campaign. And you know where they started was school boards and reject the ERA and neighborhood by neighborhood campaigns that then helped them build power that got them onto state legislatures, that got them into Congress, that got them uh, a really horrific 
fascist president. Um, I think the good news is we're at the beginning of the next 50 years. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. We're in a new beginning right now, I feel. And what we have to do then is be just as disciplined as they start are. on the local level. And, and you start, more. yeah, you start small. But the great news for us is what we're trying to create is so much more beautiful, so much more inclusive, so much more life-giving. Uh, it's it's oriented in what we're for, not just what we're against. It's oriented in love and not fear. Uh, and it creates a healthier, more healed community and world. So I think that's the really good news. You know, I love what you just said, because it gives me a point of reflection going back to the Ukraine thing right now. The whole world's yeah. together against Putin and against yeah. Russia with, with the aggression they're yeah. doing. And that makes me think, even in our society, with all the protests that happened in 2000. In 2020, I mean, and even beyond, I, I feel like there's more of us out there. It's uh -huh. like the, it's a true silent majority in a way. I yeah. feel like we just got to we just got to create the framework for everyone to connect together to do these things. Yep. And I love that you you have the organizational skills that you've worked through all these things. And yep. just the way you're answering questions and how you're sharing today shows the depth of knowledge that you have on these topics. And, and that's powerful because knowledge is power for us. And Absolutely. I I was looking at some information, and I think I mentioned this to you before we started. And one of my questions to you was going to talk about your your beliefs about spirituality and social activism and racial justice. And I shared with you, and I share shares with our audience just to make it yeah. current that when I went to the the marches for George Floyd, I was so moved by everyone coming together. And the second march I was at in Tampa, they were all peaceful, and uh, it was raining. And I remember marching, and I was in downtown Tampa, and I thought to myself, well, there was a friend from college. I thought to myself, this is something I did my life for for equality. I, I felt that first time in my life I ever felt that I could do that. Like if things got really worse than where they are even now, and we had to really, you know, protest and do things. And with these new laws in Florida, for example, that are crazy where uh, anti-protester could run you over with their car and they won't be prosecuted if you're peaceful and on the sidewalk, you know, and you know, there's just things and stuff like that, that make me think, but I, the reason I'm bringing this up, I was moved because of my spirituality and my spirit guides and my meditative practices. And I was told, go protest, go protest. You need to go be on the right side of history. And I, I went nervously at first and found my voice with it by the time I got to my fifth one. And yeah. I just say, and I simplify it, but I say that we're all made of spirit. And so for me, spirituality is the common denominator. Our bodies are like cars, they're vehicles. They help us transport ourselves on this planet. 99% of who we are is spirit. So if you look at it that way, anyone who's trying to say, I'm better than you because of the color of my skin, you're dumb. I don't ever call anyone dumb, by the way. I have to call people who think that, that they're dumb and let them yeah. know that because I will purposely make it known that anyone who feels that way is just misinformed and dumb and they can change, you know, they can grow, they can change. That's what I would love to hope for. But you're right. We got to work with the people who all share the similar beliefs first, build that patchwork of yeah. audiences, of, of groups of people who are sharing common beliefs and themes, and then utilize that to, to, to create your, your quilt of, of, yeah of beauty and, <laughs> you know, um, I want to ask you this. What do you think in, in, from your vantage point in terms of spirituality? I just gave you my, my personal experience. Yeah. I want to ask you, what's your, what's your experience with it? Because you've been doing this so long as your life work. Yeah, absolutely. And have always been a spiritually grounded person. So you had mentioned, I grew up in an interfaith household. Uh, and so my father, uh, my father was raised Hindu, all of my family, uh, 
in India are Hindu. Uh, and I was raised with a deep appreciation of and deep connection to Hinduism. I also went to church every Sunday. And it's funny, I never had a very complicated relationship with Jesus. I understand why people do. Uh, he was my best friend from the time I was three. And, uh, and I also, because I was raised in a church where they actually had us read the Bible and take it seriously, not literally, because you actually can't read it literally and take it seriously. You have to choose. Um, but because I went to a church right. that took the Bible seriously, <laughs> it meant I, I was I was raised in a church that said there are 2000 passages on how we need to do right by poor people and how we when we harm uh, poor people, we are actually out of alignment with the divine spirit. And so to be raised in a space that understood that justice was part of the relationship with the divine was awfully helpful to me. Um, I was really, really lucky. So for me, I think there's also a sense of, I have the advantage of being an immigrant, right? Uh, my parents are both immigrants. I was actually born out of the country. We're all naturalized citizens. Um, and I think part of the advantage of that is I was raised by people who were both shaped by communitarian cultures. And the interesting thing is because both Hinduism and Christianity were shaped on Asian soil, um, they are also communitarian religions. Now, the American version of Christianity, the American version of anything, is individualized. It's uh, It really is shaped by that toxic myth of independence. I was raised to think independence was a great thing. It's actually a dangerous, toxic, harmful thing. Um, when we were made for interdependence. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, you're right. We're citizens. Yeah. Together. Yeah. And so this notion of a focus on individual rights at the expense of our relationship to each other as community, it's actually really harmful to our souls. Uh, and so I'm really grateful that I did get shaped by uh, parents who understood we are uh, we are grounded in community first and foremost, and that that's actually also embedded in the spirituality I was raised in. That makes it that much easier to make a connection between spirit and activism for me. I love you're right. And we have a, a responsibility to be this way. I think we need to care about each other. And when you said there's 2000 passages that focus on helping the poor, I think of the Bible as an instruction of love. Jesus yeah. is about love and light and helping and healing, not about yeah. judgment I mean, yeah, there's that in there, but the, my interpretation of spirituality is we're supposed to help each other. We're supposed yeah. to love each other. Unconditional love yeah. is a fabric that ties us all together in the universe. So that's yeah. part of social justice. Cause if someone's being wronged yep. at the expense of another, you yep. got to correct that. Exactly. Right? We've correct and it. so you're, and so you're actually talking about something that gets me super excited because I feel like a lot of faithful folks are good at the helping at the serving at the, you know, the charity, but actually the Bible and not just the Bible. Um, in fact, it was a conversation I had with an imam. I was doing an interfaith panel on uh, interfaith responses to poverty. And there was an imam who said, y'all need to stop playing around the edges. In the Quran, it says, if somebody is poor, is hungry, it's the fault of the community. And it is not a sin for him to steal. If he's hungry, then the problem lies with the community and you cannot arrest him for stealing food 
if your community is why he's hungry. And I was like, wow, I wish I were Muslim. That's so cool. And then I started realizing as the rabbi talked and as the pastor, the Orthodox Greek Orthodox uh, priest started talking, they were like, yeah, nobody talks about this, but that's in our books too. And that's what's amazing to me is I've been, we've so often been trained into this individualized version of American Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism um, that we miss out on the fact that they're not just saying help the poor. They're saying you're, if your community is exploiting the poor, then that's a form of evil and you will suffer as a result. Absolutely. And that's why there's regulations. That's why capitalism yep. in its original form had to be reformed in the yep. 1890s to the 1900s and the 20th century. And more reforms are needed. We have to have, mm-hmm. you know, $15 for minimum wage should be higher than that. Like, yeah. there's got to be changes in society to account for the changes of our, you know, post-industrial era where we are right now with all these jobs that are post-pandemic different. You know, we've got a lot going on. Oh my and, gosh, absolutely. And, and education, you know, like, there has to be something done about student loan debt and education. Yeah, you're not kidding. Helping, right? Yep. I mean, if, if, if we're really going to try to equalize society and help with things, these things have to be addressed because that's the next bubble that's going to burst is student yep. loans. Student loans and the inequities in housing, I think both. Yeah. Healthcare. Yeah. I don't, why, why, is healthcare. It, why is it a debate? Why are yeah. these things debates? Like, yeah, if yeah. we really consider ourselves to be this evolved species of, I mean, I know we even have people on the earth that think it's flat still or that, you know, climate change isn't a real thing. And I'm thinking to myself, I live in Florida. You know how many times I have to do this during the hurricane months to to pray that our our community stays safe just from nature. I mean, when you have the earth turning against itself, it's time to make some real corrective action. And that's what we need to do. And, And that's what you're doing on a daily basis. Like, I'm all about paradigm shift. So. From my vantage point, when I think of racial justice, I think people have to start taking account of things and not think of it in emotional terms of the past. You know, I want to ask you from your from your perspective, how do you think members of our audience could help advance social justice within themselves? Because so, yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And one of the things that I am really passionate about right now, there's an organization called showing up for racial justice. Um, And they actually have a faith arm, uh, which is really cool, but most of their activists are uh, non-religious. And it's an organization specifically for white people who want to get engaged in issues of racial justice uh, and to do it in ways that are accountable to communities of color, which is one of the things I love. And in the 2020 election, they did one of the smartest organizing things I have seen ever, and I believe they're continuing to do this work, they helped equip white people to have conversations with their family and also to have conversations with poor white folks in rural communities about how the work of racial justice was aligned with the thriving of poor white folks. I'm really, really passionate about helping folks recognize that we don't have to be in competition. Exactly. And, and that actually, you know, Martin Luther King died as he was planning the Poor People's Campaign, which was intended to lift up the very real racial inequities 
and also the economic inequities that were causing suffering among poor people. And you may know about William Barber, the Reverend Dr. William Barber out of North Carolina, who is continuing that legacy along with another uh, with a number of other amazing folks. What I love about their work, and they call what they do moral fusion organizing, where they recognize the dignity of poor people's struggles. They recognize the issues of racial justice, of issues related to the prison industrial complex, where they recognize the ways eco-justice is harming poor communities in West Virginia and Nebraska. And they're bringing all of those folks together in a shared commitment to each other. So we don't actually have to leave anyone behind, even while we're talking about things that people usually think are divisive issues because they are morally fused. I am such a fan. I'm actually going to be speaking uh, at an event that William Barber is also speaking at. And he won't hear me. He won't know that we're at the same event. But I'm telling everybody I'm on the same docket as William (laughs) Barber. (laughs) That's such an interesting, amazing approach. When you It's it's common sense in a way, too, right? It is. It is. I think that's common sense. And so I actually really do think that... uh, if, a, if folks have a statewide poor people's campaign, and almost every state does, that's a great plug-in, and you'll feel less isolated and alone if you're in a state where people, you feel like nobody's taking this stuff seriously, find your people. And I think the poor people's campaign is a great way to do that. And I also think showing up for racial justice, because it is taking seriously the dignity and struggles of poor white folks and saying, you don't need to be anti-Black in order for your issues to matter. We can figure out how to do this together. I love that. It makes so much sense thinking about it that way because you're not keeping people separated and that's how certain political parties enjoy gaining their support is by dividing conquer, right? Create culture wars, create all these taboos. It's totally true. And what's interesting is what what the other party thought they needed to do was never talk about race as if that was the correct strategy. When it turns out, What's more compelling to people is being invited into a vision that's for all of us that doesn't pretend racism isn't real, that acknowledges racism is a real thing, and that the the rights of workers are real things, and that access to housing for all people is a real thing. So it's really interesting to watch organizers figuring out the thing that neither political party could figure out. And that also gives me a lot of hope. Well, it's shocking to me because I became an attorney and I bought into the system like, hey, equality, you know, we're all about equality and justice. I'm a Libra. Justice. Right. These are all important things. And then I'm in my 40s and then George Floyd and all that like shattered in my mind how we really have to rethink our American system because a lot of that was kind of programmed in us with the Pledge of Allegiance. I still support that, but we have to live up to what we're saying. We the people means everyone, right? I say that as part of my opening for my show. It's like, you can't take we the people and say, but it's only for that. And it doesn't mean that. And we know the strict adherence to the constitution never accounted for this. No, like you said, the Bible accounts for what we're talking about because we're supposed to be citizens of our society, help the poor, help each other, pick each other up. It's common sense. Yep. And not exploit each other and say that it's okay because capitalism said so. That was, I mean, you got to look at where we are now and, and 
it's so important that we pull together. That's how we're going to overcome all these challenges. Absolutely. What, what, what do you think from your vantage point you've learned in your career doing this stuff that you had ideals about? I have a lot of ideals. And then I think back on where I am now compared to them. And I still have a lot of those same ideals. But I want to ask you, what about you? Like, I know you probably had some ideals starting out when you first started doing this and your own visions of what you wanted to do. And you took some detours, but you went back on track, I'm sure. And I, where do you see yourself with that? How, you know, how it's you... funny because I actually think uh, it's kind of the opposite for me and maybe similar to you. I started out uh, in politics, right? I got to work for a congressman who I wow. admired immensely. Um, and I really had this sense that the, you know, I, I I had the swagger of somebody who's like, I understand political realism. These, you know, these ideological people with their visions of a better society, they don't know how it really works. Um, and so I feel like I was cynical before my time and I've gotten more idealistic as I've gotten older. Um, and I think part of that is because, well, you were asking about my spirituality. I, I'm really lucky. I got to hear this amazing liberation theologian named Gustavo Gutierrez. And uh, he he created this, uh, well, he's among the people who created liberation, Latin American liberation theology, which is really a theology of the poor. Um, and I remember hearing him speak and he said, we don't help the poor because the poor are good. We help the poor because God is good. And he wasn't saying the poor are bad either. And I think if you got him like bought him a drink and asked him to tell you the truth, he'd be like, and rich people are way worse. But, <laughs> um, but his point is we shouldn't romanticize the poor because if that's what our commitment to justice hinges on, we'll get our hearts broken and we'll decide it's not worth it. When where we should be oriented is we do the work of justice because while people are imperfect and they will break our hearts, they still deserve basic justice. I saw somebody recently say, nobody has done anything so horrific that they don't deserve housing. And I had never thought of it that way. I've been, I've done housing justice work for years and I had never thought of it in those terms. And it helped me shift the way I think about housing access. And I think that's so important. Nobody's done something so horrible. They don't deserve housing. Um, and so I think, I think human not, right, right? It should be a human right. Yes, I think exactly. there should be livable wages with human rights and yep. things afforded to and agreed upon. Is yep. that making somewhere out there? I don't care. I just have my own beliefs and my own feelings. And I, 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 I feel passionate about this too. I think we need to take yeah. the steps. If we're the richest, most powerful country on the earth, we need to lead by example. We should yeah. be at the forefront of social services for our society and equality. And instead of writing things into law that restrict people's voting rights, we should be the opposite. We should be making it so much easier for people to yeah. vote and express their opinions. We should want everybody's vote to count. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Look, the election of 2020 was fair. Nothing was stolen. And when you look at it, America went on the right side of <laughs> of, 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 you know, we're much better off right now, in my opinion, because I would hate to see what would have happened with this invasion if somebody else was in charge of certain things. And I pray every day, <laughs> you know, oh, I can't imagine offering my yeah. opinions there, but I have to, I, I want to yeah. ask you from your vantage point, where do you think we're going in terms of our politics and in terms of our understanding of social justice and, and how to equalize women's rights and, and uh -huh. minority rights, whatever it is. How, what, do you, what do you think we need to do? So, 
I love that question. And I think it's a really important one because I think for some folks who fought really hard to, uh, to foster democracy in the 2020 election, uh, there are some folks who are sitting back and thinking, whew, glad we took care of that. Um, 2021 saw the highest number of anti-trans pieces of legislation that our country's ever seen. Um, the, the, the fact that we're watching people ban books. I mean, I love the fact that we're, I love the fact that people are saying, oh my gosh, more people are reading the, uh, the graphic novel mouse than ever before as a result, but that's not actually what it's about. Banning books isn't actually just about banning books. It's about testing the waters for what level of anti-democratic policies can get pushed through under the auspices of protecting our children, which is a fear-based tactic. And that's what uh, that's what a certain type of person relies on. So the fact that we're watching a spike, a very intentional strategic at local you know, school boards all across the country spike in book banning campaigns, uh, the fact that we are watching voter rights access diminish, um, all of those things point to, I mean, I talked about 50 years ago, they started with a local strategy that built um, women's rights are being rolled back, um, particularly around uh, uh, reproductive justice. I think what concerns me is we're not paying attention to what's happening in our own backyards as we focus just on the national stuff, which also isn't all great. Um, and I'm so the one thing that I am concerned about is that the folks who are against justice and inclusion, they have a really strong ground game. We'll be stronger then. <laughs> We're gonna we have got to. to. Be. You gotta we be got right. To. You can't we allow. Gotta take it seriously. Gotta take it seriously, and you gotta motivate people to get involved now, so that yeah. you don't. You can't grind away and just be like you said, complacent. Like, oh well, we voted in twenty twenty. Well, it's not 2020 anymore. We, you know, it's like every, every two years, there's a challenge to democracy. Basically when you have Marjorie Taylor green in Congress. Yeah. Talking about some of my space. I mean, yeah, no, some of my organizing friends, uh, people I respect deeply, you know, religious leaders who have also been doing community organizing for decades. They are saying this is the least watched most dangerous election we've had oh, yeah. in our lifetimes. Uh, because a lot of us aren't paying attention. We're gonna have to start. And a lot of the a lot of the folks who uh, were really comfortable with our trajectory towards fascism, they are paying attention. They're staying strong. I'll say this to you: I go walking regularly, and I had a premonition a few months ago that as I was walking, I was thinking about the future of Roe v. Wade and its mm -hmm. potential threat of being overturned by the Supreme Court. And I felt mm -hmm. like I had this premonition, and the premonition I had were like thousands of women with baby carriages marching with their baby carriages, which are symbolic. There's not necessarily babies in the carriages because yeah. with abortion and, and everything, but I, I felt there would be this movement, a grassroots movement that helps overturn the tides of inequity in our society that was going to happen over the next 10 years. I think it's a gradual movement, but I think it's going to get spurned on by the overturning, temporary overturning of Roe v. Wade and the restriction on abortion in the 50 states based on where you live, you'll have access either or not. And I think that's going to help galvanize society because you're going to have a lot of these younger generations who are going to see rights taken away from them. 
And yeah. just like where you're, you know, when you have something that the threat taken away from you for real and you start experiencing it, I, I think at the at the the base of who we are as Americans, we're not meant to be in an autocratic society and we're not into dictatorships and all that. We've had threats with it in the 30s and yeah. other times throughout history of McCarthyism. I just don't see it happening. I think it, it's scary, but yeah. I just think that, you know, there's there's more at work that we got to do. And society itself, I feel like we're going to pull together. I'm, I'm an optimist, though. I always say my glass is half full. I always say that there's people in our society that might be narrow minded now, but they're going to change. You know, like I, I always think that way. That's yeah. just me. Yeah. And I think we've got work to do to help people grow into their best selves. There are actually amazing resources that are coming out where psychologists are helping people learn how to talk to their families that have fallen even into stuff like QAnon to help pull them out. A lot of folks who were trained in um, how to remove people from cults are yeah. bringing their skills and making them available to a broader constituency so that we can we help our people like that. We need people like that to get in mass and create their own podcast for themselves so they can set up programming that helps <laughs> help society get de de deprogrammed. deprogrammed. Yeah, I mean, that's what you need to do. I mean, when you start arguing about facts and fake facts and yep. fake news, that's when you know our society is taking a sharp turn in the wrong direction. So we've yep. got to look at truth and keep it where it belongs. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what's your opinions about economic justice? What can we do to help impact society in a positive way to change? the inequities of our society when it comes to economic and you know, justice. You know that quote, it often gets attributed to John Steinbeck. I just found out it wasn't his, but nobody can tell me whose it actually was, where he says, um, America might never have a revolution, another revolution, because poor people don't think of themselves as opp oppressed masses. They think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And I think... The biggest scam job in this country was rich people convincing poor white people in particular, hey, we're on the same team. Um, I think it's just been brilliantly like done in that Machiavellian way. Um, what I've been really inspired by, and you know, I think some of us dismiss how important the Occupy movement was. Uh, we think it was a flash in the pan, but the fact of the matter is we're having conversations now because of what was seated there. One of the ones that's really inspiring me, it's called the Alphabet Workers Campaign, and it's uh, tech workers in Silicon Valley joining together with the people who work, you know, the janitors and the food prep folks uh, and the maintenance crew at tech companies joining forces. So people who have been told you're doing really well, you're part of the upper class who are like, yeah, but I'm working 80 hours a week and I never yeah. see my family. And this is a different kind of exploitation. Seeing a connection between themselves and the, the grounds crew uh, and saying, we've got to organize together. We're going to support you all getting better economic conditions because we're the same. When most of us have been trained to aspire to being the guy at the top instead of seeing how we're connected to the guy at the bottom. Uh, and so oh, I love right. that campaign. I love the fact that people are like, oh, wait, we actually have more in common with the folks who are doing the cleaning and the cooking than we do with the guy who is making us work 80 hours a week and telling us we've got it good. Absolutely. Think about it. It's oppressive. 
Yep. One is one class of people is oppressing the rest of society yep. to perpetuate their wealth and their opulence yep. and and what they consider to be the most. It's a power structure, right? Yep. I mean, if you break it down to the bare of what it is, I feel like it's a power structure, and that's existed Absolutely. in our human society since the beginning of time. So we've got to figure out how to reorchestrate in our society to dismantle parts of that power structure so it becomes more egalitarian and the wealth flows to where it belongs and there's gotta be they talk about like job creators and i'm like do you know who the real wealth generators are though they're the folks who are doing the work exactly the working elon musk be if the The working poor the working class the the unemployed Mm -hmm. people all those aspects of society yep are are the majority and that's where we have to i'm not a communist uh, right. We're not socialists. We're just looking at what's equal in our society. How do we, right. how do we, after we've been through some really rough years, right? Between 2016 and on, I feel like we've been through the, the hell basket and back more like a, a, a dumpster fire, in my opinion. But I mean, yeah. you can't, you, if you, you could not, if, if as a psychic, if I would have predicted in 2014, all the stuff that would have happened, people would have, you know, I, I'd be, I'd be somewhere else right now. You just can't, you can't, you can't script it. Stephen King, yeah. I think tweeted he couldn't have scripted half the stuff that we've been right. Society. Right. I mean, when you think about it, it's <laughs> you can't laugh about it because it's painful, but you don't want to harp on it to be depressed. But you got to pull everyone up. Yeah, we're at a good we're at a good moment right now. Think about it. Yeah, we're in a good moment. We could pull everyone up. We really could. It's actually the possibilities are really exciting. We could afford to provide health care for everybody, and it would actually save the country money in the long run. Yes, it would. Because you yeah. wouldn't have people having to get sued to to, to oh go bankrupt gosh. and write off the bills and people dying of cancer. I had cancer a few years ago. Thank God I had health insurance. I almost they wanted oh, to real. cancel it temporarily. I had to put my lawyer hat on and get my you know threaten them and they reinstated me right before my treatments. But that was me. What if I I don't have that knowledge? Right. If what you if didn't, didn't have, have a law degree. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, think that's so real. It's a life and death situation when you think about it. Absolutely. And I have to say, like, from my vantage point, it's so important we talk about these things because right now there are people talking about it, but it's not like it needs to be. Right. Right. I want to ask if our audience wants to find you, where would they go to find you? Absolutely. So the easiest place, because it involves less spelling, is withoutfearconsulting.com. I do a little weekly newsletter that's called Joy in justice. It's encouraging, supportive ways of thinking through how to create diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Um, I try to keep it really positive and really supportive and story-based. And I'm, so that's, that's a link that's available at withoutfearconsulting.com. Excellent. Excellent. For yourself, when you think about your journey, and I keep bringing that up today, I don't know why I'm just on this journey bit, but I know, I know you're an author, I know you have your own podcast. First off, I want to ask you about your podcast. We talked about it a little Aww. bit before we started. I wanted to give you that opportunity to share that Thanks with our Thanks so much. I love creative oh, expression. You know, yeah, it's so I, it's funny. I, I made this connection a while back. I got into this cartoon called Avatar The Last Airbender because of an ex-boyfriend. And then I was talking with my friend Ayana and I was like, have you watched this cartoon, Avatar The Last Airbender? And she's like, yeah, an ex-boyfriend of mine got me into it. And I realized that all of these people of color in my life found it a really empowering, really inspiring, really hopeful show. And we're all grown people. um, (laughs) And we love this kids cartoon. So I decided to put together a podcast called 
Bending Towards Justice, Avatar The Last Airbender for the Global Majority. And it's people of color's perspectives on this amazing, hope-filled, inspiring cartoon about fighting injustice and creating peace. I love the I love the way that sounds. Hey, think of it this way. We're we're I'd love to be called an activist if when I'm at the tap, right? If there's a lot of things you want to be called in life, being an activist is such an amazing thing to be called. I'm not there yet, but I'm saying if we ever get there, to me, I'd, I'd want to be the person that 40 years from now, I have relatives talk about me that I was on the right side of history, not yeah. the wrong side of history. And it's as easy as that. You either are a part of something or you're not. And if you're silent, you're not supporting, in my yeah. opinion. You can't be a silent, you know... You can't you can't do social justice quietly. Yeah, you got you got to do the good the good cause, and you gotta you gotta be expressive. I, you know, I remember as a child, my grandma telling me, "Don't talk about politics, race, or religion, or abortion." Or the- right? <laughs> yeah. And now I talk about all of them because if I don't, who is? Exactly, exactly. I love that. <laughs> it's and it's interesting because my uh, I just submitted a manuscript. The book comes out September 27th. Um, and it's about ancestors and uh, what it means to connect with our ancestors as part of our work of justice. And one of the things that a, a quote I came across that really sums things up well related to what you were just talking about is if we don't know our ancestors, then we don't have a sense of legacy. And if we don't have a sense of our own legacy, the legacy we want to leave, then we stay only in the present. And that can actually result in us doing harm. Uh, And so I love that you're saying, here's how I want to be remembered. Because if we think in those terms, it can guide us towards doing great good in the world. 100%. I'll say this to you. and I love the way you just phrased that. When When I marched and my spirit guides were telling me, go do this, go do this. Then after the marches ended, I was like, what else can I do? You have a platform, they said. Yeah, my spirit guide said, I meditate a lot. You have a platform. Alter your platform or or, or embrace these ideas and make it part of your show. And so I redid my opening. I had my own thing. You know, I did all that. Anyone who listens to my opening will understand my old opening was nothing like the new one that's been around for two years. And then I remember trying to get guests to come on. It was, it was, I had a few come on. But it was more of a struggle than not, because I think people had to go across the, the the idea of overcoming a paradigm that I could be a psychic lawyer and I want to talk about these things because I'm passionate about it. And it's like such an honor two years in from that original, you know, spiritual experience that motivated me to have a download to r- open up my show to these ideas. It's like such a pleasure. Like, I, I can't begin to tell you like where I'm at right now in my life. And I just feel so honored to have our conversation this evening where we could talk about these topics and do so in a way where I feel the energy just flowing between us. Like, yeah, right. You could, you could feel Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I know our audience is going to see it too. And I'm just so grateful to have you on here and I want to have you back. And I, I would love to that. Together. I want us to work together on important causes and things that, you know, we can collaborate on. And I, I leave that That's open beautiful. to you as an opportunity to oh, uh, work with me in, in any way I can through my future endeavors. I'd love to keep you in oh, mind. Thanks so much. I would be grateful for that. Cross promote each other, whatever we can do. Yes. You know? I think it's just, it's just so relevant. I mean, what else can you boil down to but relevance? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so grateful to have gotten to hang out with you. Thank you. So <laughs> That's much what it felt us. like. We hung out. We're yes. hanging out right now. Exactly. It's like we had tea, right? You, you talk about your bio about having tea. It's like we had the podcast phone call. Like we, we did true. our Zoom call and we did our interview at the same time. 
I just want to thank Shonda Ja for coming on the show today. What an amazing guest sharing just such passion. And one of the things I think is most important about talking about right now is she raised a very important point. I want to, I want to leave this as a question for everybody. What's your legacy going to be? You know, it's 2022. You can go on TikTok. You can see people taking these dances, challenging each other. You have influencers. I, I do selfies. I admit it. But where are we going to leave our legacy? What are you going to do as your contribution that you can leave on this planet other than a child, a career, or a goal and a passion? And my, and my thing is try to focus on ideas like diversity, equity, inclusion, because I've been on my own journey since my show the last two years, and I've met some amazing people, including our guest today, and I've learned. And I, I never claim to know a lot about this stuff because I'm just like the average person in that realm. But the one thing I'll say is I think legacy is important. We need to talk about our legacies right now and accountability. And we're all citizens of this planet. And when you think of that, take a stand. You know, there's a big election coming up in the fall, the midterms. And if you don't know anything about your candidates that you can vote for, find out, look up this stuff, be informed. We need you. We need everyone in this audience who shares a passion of uniting together to help go against racism and oppression in our society. It's so important. And fight for LGBTQ rights and everything else. And it's just, it's a lot. We have a lot to call ourselves together, but we've got to do it because our future is relying on us, our future selves, our families, our children, and our posterity. So I will leave you with that. I'm so appreciative about our guests coming on today. Just check out these things, showing up for racial justice. I, I wrote down some things. Withoutfearconsulting.com is our guest website. And I take notes when I do these interviews and I learn and I reflect on my notes afterwards. Try to do the same. If you listen to this, take some notes because you never know who you can come across that can change your entire outlook. Moral fusion organizing. I love it. it it's, it's uniting poor whites, poor blacks across economic grounds. So there's not racism there. We don't need to be divided. We need to come together. So check this stuff out, educate yourselves, get involved. We need to cultivate understanding, love, and, just under, and, and universal acceptance. So I appreciate our guest and I will have all her information in the show notes. We'll have more programming like this in the future and stay positive, stay informed, be active, get engaged. Because when you do all those things, the world's going to be a better place and you'll be glad you did. That'll be part of your legacy. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Hi, my name is Sean Copeland, and I am the host of the Kingdom Driven CEO, one of America's fastest growing podcasts. We download new content every Saturday morning before noon. The podcast is never over 15 to 20 minutes long, and we talk about relevant topics such as personal development, leadership strategies, and how to integrate faith into our daily lives, including our work. So we hope you'll join us for the Kingdom Driven CEO new content every Saturday morning. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. 
It's a talk show covering the changing world around us, from renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.